It was the right decision, and it was for the right reasons. On Sunday, Iraqis will go to the polls to elect a new government. Today, as Britain's own election campaign is getting underway, the Prime Minister took his seat in front of the Iraq War Inquiry panel he set up. In this special podcast, we'll look at the main themes of the session. Did Brown, who was Chancellor at the outbreak of war, provide enough funds for vital equipment? How closely was he involved in the decision to attack Iraq? And did he budget well enough for reconstruction? Joining me to discuss the day's proceedings are Michael White, who was The Guardian's political editor at the time of the Iraq war, and Chris Ames, the editor of Iraq Inquiry Digest website. Hello to you both. Let's start with a quick summary. Uh, Mike, what's your overall view about how he performed today? Well, people sometimes say there's good Gordon and there's bad Gordon, and we saw good Gordon today. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't sort of sweaty and scowly. He seemed to be on the top of his material. He had uh, done a lot of homework and was not discomforted. Well, this inquiry team is not six Jeremy Paxman, so you didn't expect that. But Brown was uh, at ease, fairly at ease, but certainly by his standards, and probably more so than Tony Blair a few weeks ago in the same chair. Chris, how would you characterise what we heard today? Yes, I'd agree with Mike that he was certainly at ease. There were only a couple of occasions this morning where Gordon Brown was actually put on the spot about the the detail of of what he was saying. This afternoon, I think he seemed very much on top of his material, much more on top of the the funding issues than the panel, perhaps, but that's perhaps understandable. I mean, the the, the war was deeply unpopular, of course, and at the time, Brown kept his head down, didn't he, Mike? Uh, um, To what degree did he... Was he able to put some distance between himself and Tony Blair today? Well, I don't think he did, and I didn't really think he could. There was an afternoon during the run-up to the war when, sitting at my desk in my grubby little office in the House of Mm. Commons, I took an unexpected call from Gordon Brown, not something which uh, happened much before, and I don't think has ever happened since. He hasn't talked to me for years. Uh, And he was saying, I just want you to know that I'm right behind Tony on this. I said, oh, yeah, thanks. Um, uh, But uh, uh, he, obviously, he... He was Blair's lieutenant. He was his uh, expected successor. He has succeeded. And, uh, of course, he had to say, yes, we backed the war, the right war for the right reasons. Although uh, the explanation he gave was slightly different from Blair's fundamentally, some people would say. He said, you know, we had to uphold the international order. People who defied uh, UN resolutions consistently, persistently, had to be told you're not going to get away with this. And what's more, although he had to be pushed to say this, the French would have blocked the UN Security Council resolution, the second one after 14. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll get to some of the, uh, the key issues now then. Uh, let's start with that uh, question of equipment that I was mentioning a few moments ago. Uh, General Lord Guthrie, who led the armed forces from 97 to 2001, was uh, quoted in the Times today. He said, not fully funding the army in the way they'd asked undoubtedly cost the lives of soldiers. And this afternoon, we heard the panel put to the Prime Minister some questions from bereaved families of dead soldiers. So they asked basically these three questions. Were you aware of concerns about the lack of armoured vehicles? Did you receive any requests for funding, particularly between 1997 and 2006, for the purchase of armoured vehicles? And lastly, were any concerns raised with you about the use of snatched Land Rovers? Well, I do understand the concerns of every relative uh, where there has been a death in conflict. It is right that we give uh, the fullest explanation possible and uh, my sympathies go out to people who have questions that they wish answered and I will do everything in my power to answer as I will continue to do the questions that that, that people have. I think if you 
look at uh, the um, question of expenditure in Iraq, you've got to start from this one fundamental truth, that every request that the military commanders made to us for equipment was answered. No request was ever turned down. And I would add to that, uh, as long as I have been Prime Minister, I've always asked the military, at the point at which they are undertaking any new operation, can they assure me that they have the equipment, the equipment that they need for the task that they're undertaking? Chris, Brown claims all the requests for equipment were met, but that doesn't necessarily chime with earlier evidence, uh, does it? No, it doesn't. It's uh, quite a stark position considering what people have said. Um, A lot of military figures have already said. There is um, an interesting issue about saying that all the requests were made because to some extent the military are told not to make requests because they won't get the money. And that's that's a trick that the government often plays, is classically played with military funding requests. You're not going to get this, so don't make, make, make the request. And then when people ask us, we'll say all the requests have been met. So I think there was a bit of that going on there. I think you have to know really all the details of, you know, what was needed and the extent to which things were truly needed or were just on the military's wish list to know actually, mm. you know, in, in a real sense, what was what was required to conduct the war effectively. But uh, as far as that went, I think, you know, Blair had his, um, Brown had his defence and stuck to that very strongly. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. Uh, I mean, it cuts both ways, this one. Chris is right, quite right to say that they play games. And of course, the military don't handle their procurement budgets. That's the equipment they buy. They're notorious for overruns and misdesign and things like that. Eternal battle between politicians and the military, which breaks out into open when there's real trouble. So uh, on this one, you could expect to come back. It'll be really interesting to see how people like General Lord Guthrie, who as Chief of the Defence Staff had a shouting match with Brown mm. as Chancellor, saying you don't care about the military, you're not interested in us. There is plenty of evidence that that is true. Although I thought today he was a man who had finally been forced us to understand more about the military than he ever did when he was Chancellor. He was on top of the detail. And he was certainly on top of the figures, wasn't he, Chris? He bamboozled the panel, panel with figures at, at Although one they point. include military experts. So Lawrence Friedman is a serious... Uh, uh, man, although yeah, good no point. Pa- no Paxman. There was a big, there was a big. No, certainly not no, another man, really. Are they? Uh, there was a big discussion about changes in Treasury ac- accounting rules, wasn't there, Chris? Do you think they were sufficiently briefed the panel to pick their way through that? I think they were. I think uh, this is something that came up particularly when Jeff Hoon gave evidence a few weeks ago. Uh, it's. It's I mean, he, he, he said it all comes down to this. Resource accounting. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, about, about resource accounting and the, the fact that initially the uh, the Minister of Defence thought that uh, all their Christmases had come at once because it, it very much gave them scope to fund uh, an awful lot of things that they wanted to fund. And well, the well, Treasury subsequently realised that, yes. you know, that they were getting away with a lot more than they were supposed Money to. Money seemed to come out of thin air, didn't it, at one point? Yes, and, and however that resource-based accounting works is, as I say, beyond me, but it, it seemed to be a, a, a huge mistake on the part of the, the Treasury initially to let the MOD get away with it and then they had to rein them in very strongly from, from what Brown said. I mean, Brown was very much saying it would have had huge implications for public spending if they hadn't reined the MOD in on that point and would have affected other departments and given other departments a green light to go ahead with some additional spending. I'm on the Treasury's side on this one. The military is inherently wasteful, but... Uh, when you're asking the military to fight two wars at once, that changes everything. And uh, the, the, the British military was shrunk after the Cold War, the famous Cold War peace dividend, and then after uh, the end of the fighting in, in Northern Ireland, uh, and then 
unreasonable demands were placed upon them, and mm. that's really what this is about. All right. Um, let, let's look at how closely Bran was involved in the, de- the decision to go to war. The session began in the morning uh, by, by looking at how closely Bran worked with Tony Blair in the run-up uh, to the invasion of Iraq. Some have suggested that Bran was reluctant to support an attack on Saddam Hussein. What You, you were referring to this uh, earlier, Mike. Uh, but he began and ended declaring his support for the war. These were decisions that required judgment. Uh, These were decisions that required uh, strong leadership. These were decisions that were debated and uh, uh, divided uh, uh, a lot of opinion in in the country. Uh, I believe they were the right decisions. I believe we made the right decisions for the right reasons. But I also believe it is our duty uh, to learn lessons from from what what has happened. Uh, Brown was trying to hold the position that uh, he, he was almost uninvolved in the, um, in, in the decisions to go to war, do you think, Mike? Or Well, no, I wouldn't go that far. He said that you know, the cabinet heard what it needed to know. I wasn't at all the meetings, but uh, you wouldn't expect me to be. Uh, sometimes we sent the chief secretary to the treasury. Uh, I didn't know what uh, Tony Blair and Robin Cook knew. The detailed paperwork, Cook, of course, uh, resigned, saying that he preferred the sort of sanctions and uh, no-fly zone policy. Brown said that didn't work. Uh, diplomacy had ended. He wasn't particularly convincing on this. And uh, 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 Sir Roderick Lyne, who's the nearest thing the committee has to a Paxman, mm. said the Americans had a military deadline. Come on, didn't they? And he, he, he ducked that one. I think they did. But again, there's a sort of UN worldview and a real worldview where they're bound to clash on this one. And nobody's ever going to say who was uh, ultimately uh, 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 right or wrong. Uh, you, you can't sit an army at on a border forever and ever. That would be the real world view of that. Yeah, Chris, I mean, I mean he was almost walking a, a tightrope, really, try, wasn't he? Try, trying on, um, on, on the one hand to uh, clearly be seen to be sufficiently curious in the, in the run-up to war, as you'd expect a senior member of the cabinet to be, but almost trying to slightly distancing himself from the absolute key, key decisions because, because they were so unpopular. I, I think that's right. I think what he did to some extent was to try and back the war while distancing himself from it by effectively saying, I was in the loop, even though there was quite a lot of evidence that he wasn't. I mean, the inquiry mm. went through a number of things today that Brown had no part in, particularly in 2002. Uh, the early discussions in March 2002 leading up to Crawford in April of that year, the big meeting of July 2002 at Downing Street, uh, the missives that Tony Blair sent to George Bush saying, we'll back you. Brown made quite clear and it was reinforced by the panel and, yeah and 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 he and he said that that, that he hadn't seen the uh, the full lord Gold, goldsmith uh, advice to uh, that's right uh, on, on the legality of war that's right but then he went on to say that if he had it wouldn't have made any difference <laughs> and that nothing short of actually goldsmith saying the war would have been illegal would have made, caused him to change his position uh, I, I think to some extent brown is over egging the the idea that uh, you know he, he backed what Blair said the war was all about and, and, and trusted him. He's, he's very much putting his, his case around that so that if it now turns out that, you know, Blair had made a secret deal and that mm. Brown was unaware of that, then Brown has sort of constructed his alibi in advance. All right. All right. Finally, let's look at the uh, post-war reconstruction uh, debate which was addressed. I mean, even Blair admitted uh, that wasn't well planned. Uh, the International Development Secretary, Claire Short, has given evidence to the inquiry. She suggested that there weren't sufficient funds for redevelopment. Uh, Brown was asked about that today and this is what he said. I may say it's, it's one of my regrets that uh, I wasn't able to be more successful in pushing uh, the Americans further on this issue. 
the planning for reconstruction was, was essential just at the same time as the planning uh, for uh, war if the diplomatic avenue failed. Uh, Gordon Brown there um, in his one moment of re- regret that, that he expressed. What did you think of that, Chris? I think we possibly learned something new on that today. Brown was putting himself very much in, in the planning stage, at a very late stage of the planning in March 2003, saying that he wrote a paper to go to the Americans about the reconstruction, about the funding. Um, he said he very much regretted that that wasn't taken up. It's one of those expressions of regret where you're implying that it was somebody else's fault rather than a, you know an apology. But uh, you know he was kind of saying, I was right about this and I turned out to be right. That was as much as he criticised anyone, I think. But we kind of knew that. He said, I'm not one of these neo cons who thought that uh, you could create democracy and liberty at the barrel of a gun overnight uh, he said of course there was planning done in the State Department but of course the State Department was marginalised at this stage, Colin Powell the uh, 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 Secretary of State was uh, afraid to go abroad to negotiate uh, for uh, this UN Security Council resolution because you know, they'd overturned the policy behind his back Cheney and Rumsfeld, Defence and Vice President, that's why uh, Blair had to do so much of it, so in a way Colin Powell, Blair and Brown are on the same side as Reconstruction. They just lost the battle for the president's ear. Disastrous consequences. I think there was a fascinating uh, point today, but showing Gordon Brown's reluctance to criticise anyone overtly, where Sir John Chilcott talked about this episode where the responsibility for reconstruction was moved from the State Department to defence in in the United States. And uh, Gordon Brown said, this is the problem I've been alluding to. And it was very much, he alluded to an awful lot of things today without actually saying them directly. And the fact that Sir John Gilcott didn't actually realise that this was what he'd been alluding to in the first place showed how opaque some of his his criticisms were. Don't pick in a fight with the Americans unless you really want to. I thought uh, blaming the neocons was about as brave as Gordon Brown was going to get. Blame the French, much safer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, uh, f- uh, uh, final thoughts, Chris. Um, you've been studying this in- in- inquiry ve- very closely for your website. I mean, you know, it was a big big moment today to have a serving prime minister in, uh, in front of it. Uh, what, what conclusions would you go away with? I think it was a big moment to have a serving prime minister a couple of months away from a general election in front of it. I think to some extent I can understand now why the inquiry didn't want that to happen because Brown took possibly more political line than he would have done. I think the the needs of the inquiry and Brown's need not to cock up before the election sort of collided there and he went into very political mode and that kind of undermined the inquiry getting anything useful out of it. Tie in, Mike, um, if you would, the uh, what we heard today and what we're going to hear here um, over the coming coming weeks in in the in the in the election campaign. Well, Chris is right. I have to say, it looks like another own goal for the opposition. I seem to remember they wanted Gordon Brown to testify. Chilcot didn't want him. Brown didn't want him. Yeah, Brown was, all, was forced was all, into this was all got up by David Cameron. Yep, wasn't it? and Nick and Clegg too. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Serves him right because in fact Brown took a gamble and it worked for him. It may not have done him a lot of good with a lot of voters. People who are hostile to the war won't be persuaded now. But nonetheless, he didn't screw up and he looked the part. He looked like a prime minister, which he does not always do. Okay. Uh, th- thanks very much to uh, Chris Ames, the editor of the Iraq Inquiry. Digest, and you heard at the end there Michael White, uh, the political commentator for uh, The Guardian. Thanks to both of them. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Matt Wells. Goodbye. <laughs>